Good morning. I hope this sermon finds you well <clears throat> as the church worships together this Sunday morning. My name is Frank Wong, and I'm the assistant pastor here at Potomac Hills Presbyterian Church. If you're lurking on the internet and you haven't had any contact with me or Dr. Dave Silvernail, who's the senior pastor, I encourage you to drop us an email, which you can find on our website. Um, and we'd love to hear your story and support you in the gospel in this difficult time. Now, a few words about where we're going as a church in our series in the Gospel of Mark. Last week, we were in chapter 9 at the Transfiguration. This week, we're at in chapter 14. And when we set out the sermon schedule ages ago, he had actually planned to skip around a little bit in the lead up to Easter so that we could be spiritually prepared. And so this Sunday was going to be a communion Sunday. And of course, that's not happening. Um, but it seemed fitting back then to look at the institution of the Lord's Supper and then to eat the Lord's Supper. And so that's why we're looking at Mark chapter 14 this week. Next week, uh, Palm Sunday, we'll be looking at the triumphal entry in Mark 11. And then on Easter, we'll be looking at the resurrection. Now, let's turn our attention to the Word of God. If you would turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 14, we'll be reading verses 12 to 25 and it'll also be printed in your bulletin as well. <clears throat> so Mark chapter 14, verses 12 to 25. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, uh, he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, Where's my guest room, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. There prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve, and as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. And they began to be sorrowful and say to him, one after another, is it I? And he said to them, it is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them. And they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we come to your word this morning feeling a little weird, a little resigned, a little stir-crazy, maybe a little afraid. Uh, who knows all the feelings that are swirling around inside of our hearts. Lord, thank you that this passage speaks to so many of the feelings that we have. Um, and Lord, would you help us to rest as we listen to your word and would it be a balm to our souls? And we pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. <clears throat> so this morning, 
let's take a little break from the coronavirus talk and start with another movie that remakes an 80s TV show because apparently I like to start my sermons this way. The last time I preached it was Mission Impossible and this week it's The A-Team. So the hallmark of The A-Team is sort of like the flip side of Mission Impossible. While Tom Cruise and the MI team constantly are overcoming whatever impossible hurdles the bad guys throw their way, flexing their plan and changing plans and making new plans, the A-team simply forces the bad guys to dance to their tune. They've planned everything out so that things work out just the way that they want. And at the end, somebody always utters the line, I love it when a plan comes together. And so in the end, it doesn't really matter what the bad guy does. No matter what wrenches they throw at the plan through all the twists and the turns, it all still goes according to plan. And the A-team is always in control, even when they seem like they're not. And I think that's what we should focus on this morning in Mark 14. Sure, we could spend our time working our way through the theology behind the Lord's Supper, but I think that would miss Mark's point. You see, Mark is meant to be read as a story of Jesus' march toward the cross. The cross has a huge influence and casts a shadow on the book as a whole. The Passion Week, the last week of Jesus' life, takes up a full third of the book. And so we see the importance of the cross. And when we arrive in chapter 14, the drama is heightening. It says, if If this were a movie, the music would be rising in volume and the tension is palpable because, you see, the death of Jesus is somewhat unexpected. If we were to sit down and think about how a Savior should come and bring victory over all things, doing it through the cross is completely unexpected. It's a huge twist in how we, the disciples, and the whole world think the story should go. It's sort of like a giant wrench thrown into the plans of God. But in the end, Jesus and the Father are rejoicing over loving how a plan comes together. And so this morning, as we look at the lead up to the Lord's Supper and its institution, we're going to see that Jesus has a plan and a plan that leads us to the cross a little later, um, a little later on in the book. And since, this, and since this passage divides neatly into three parts, we'll see that Jesus has a plan literally in verses 12 to 16. And then we'll see that Jesus has a plan in spite of sin in verses 17 to 21. And finally, we'll see that Jesus has a plan that anticipates and unites in verses 12, 22 to 25. So let's start with Jesus has a plan literally in verses 12 to 16. Since we've skipped from uh, chapter 9 straight to chapter 14, it'll be important to understand all that has happened in the lead up. When we pick up our passage in verse 12, Jesus and the disciples have already spent much of the Passion Week in Jerusalem. He had entered the city to much fanfare and popularity and rejoicing back in chapter 11 at the triumphal entry. And the religious establishment is not too pleased. He's really popular, and they're really not happy about that, right? And at the beginning of chapter 14, Mark tells us that they were so not happy about that that they were looking for a way to arrest and kill Jesus and to do so by stealth since they feared the reaction of the crowds. That's how popular Jesus was. And just before we pick up in verse 12, the way 
the, that way that they're looking for came from as unexpected a place as you might imagine, from Jesus's own inner circle. When Judas decides to betray him, it's stunning, right? So when the disciples asked about the Passover, the Passover meal in verse 12, Jesus is acutely aware that dining privately with the disciples is just the sort of opportunity that the chief priests and scribes were looking for to arrest him. And really, just the sort of opportunity that Judas is looking for to out Jesus. And so he had a plan, a literal plan, a plan for the meal. And his plan was to send two disciples ahead to prepare the meal. And the rest of the disciples would be kept in the dark about its location until they arrive. And so that keeps Judas from knowing where they're going to have dinner and sort of informing on Jesus. Now, the commentators are kind of split on whether Jesus had made advanced plans with the master of the house or if Jesus had simply flexed some divine muscles and called his shot, uh, shot again. But either way, our conclusion is the same. Jesus was and is firmly in control. He was clearly ensuring and uh he was clearly ensuring that he would, he would have at least one last meal with his disciples to prepare them for the events of the next day. And it, in fact, would be one last meal because the next day would include his trial and execution. And we know that Mark had Judas's betrayal in mind because immediately after he concludes his account of the preparations, he launches into Jesus's revelation that there was a betrayer in their midst. Because remember, like after the end of the preparations, when they arrive, there's stuff that happens before we get to Jesus revealing that he knows that there's a betrayer in their midst. And so the plan of a literal plan in like makes it clear that Jesus has Judas in mind in terms of the preparation of the meal. Which brings us to Jesus's announcement, right? That Jesus has a plan in spite of sin. And Jesus's announcement that one of them would betray him would have been a bombshell. I mean, can you imagine it? You're celebrating a wave of awesome ministry. They're riding high. Jesus is super popular. You're eating a culturally significant meal that points to the great things that God has done. And you're doing it with your closest friends. It would have been a joyful, wonderful time of friendship, fellowship, and worship. And then out of the blue, Jesus says that one of your dearest friends will be a traitor. Talk about killing the mood. And what's the first question you ask? Well, who is it? And you look around the room wondering who it will be, and then a horrible realization starts coming, crashing in. Jesus didn't say that he had already been betrayed, but that one of them would betray him. Could it possibly be me? Is it me? Am I going to be the one who betrays the Lord Jesus, the Lord, my Lord and Savior? Am I going to be the one that turns his back on all the good things, all the amazing things that I've seen, what I know to be true, that he is the Son of God? Am I going to turn my back on all of that? Is it me? You can feel the, the anxiety, the wondering, the doubts just swirling through the, the disciples. But what's curious is that Jesus already knows that it's Judas. Judas. 
right? He could have simply outed him right then and there. But he simply says, it is one of the 12, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. And you can hear the collective groan of the disciples. Well, that's super helpful. Obviously, it's one of us. Duh. Give us a clue as to who it will be. But I want to ask the question, why is this here? Why is this account here? Why does Jesus drop the bomb, so to speak? Why does Jesus even bring it up if he's not willing to out his betrayer? What is he hoping to achieve by revealing that simply one of them is betrayer, that he knows one of them is going to be a betrayer? And I think that what Jesus is doing is that he's showing Judas an astonishing amount of grace. Jesus didn't just have a plan for the meal, but he had a plan to reach out to Judas too, in spite of his sin, in spite of his unspeakable betrayal. How must Judas have received these revealing words? Surely he should know, he would know that Jesus knows. Jesus is in, is in a sense saying, look at what you're about to do. Open your eyes to the sin that you're about to commit. Turn from it and repent. It's not too late. From the Gospel of John's account, we can see that Jesus, prior to sitting down at the table, he had washed the disciples' feet as they came into the meal. This was a lowly and dirty task, and yet Jesus washes every single one of those dusty, dirty feet, including Judas's, and he declares almost all of them clean. That one amongst them is not clean. And what is he doing? He's calling out to Judas saying, hey, I know. Was there any guilt swirling in Judas's heart and mind as Jesus served him so graciously and then told him that he knew? And then John, in, John also seems to suggest that Jesus had given Judas a seat of honor right next to him on, at the table, on his left, in fact. And just so you know, the custom was to recline at the table with your head toward the table and your feet away from it. And you'd lie there on your left arm and eat with your right. And John is clearly seated at Jesus' right hand in John chapter 13. But Judas is implied to be on his left. And from there, Judas would have been so close to Jesus that he could privately whisper to Jesus whatever he wanted to whisper, privately and uh, without anybody knowing. And he could do it whenever he wanted. And so in a sense, Jesus is calling out to Judas here. In Mark 14, he's saying, look, Judas, I love you. I'm going to give you a place of honor at my left hand, a place of intimacy where you can talk to me about whatever you want, whenever you want, without anybody else knowing. I know that there is something that you should tell me. Confess about what you're going to do. Turn from your sin. I'm giving you every opportunity. He says, he's saying to him, no one knows but me, Judas. Turn from your sin, give it all up and confess. It's not too late. And even the wording of Jesus' statement calls to Judas to repent. Verse 18 ends with the phrase, one who is eating with me. And that phrase highlights the depth of betrayal since eating together was a sign of friendship, remember. 
Furthermore, it alludes to Psalm chapter 41, verse 9, which itself is a reference to the infamous betrayal of Ahithophel. For those of you that don't know him or have, haven't paused the video to Google that name, Ahithophel was David's most trusted advisor, King David's most trusted advisor. Ahithophel, however, betrayed David by siding with Absalom with, uh, when Absalom decided to rebel and stage a coup. When it became clear that Absalom would lose and that the coup would fail, Ahithophel set his affairs in order and then hung himself. And so can you hear what Jesus is saying? He's saying, Judas, consider the example of Ahithophel. Look at what happened to him. He hung himself. It's not too late. And of course, we know that Judas doesn't repent. He plays his role coolly, fooling everyone but Jesus. And then he ends up following the footsteps of Ahithophel and hanging himself. He's committed to his sin and rejects all of Jesus's calls to him. But what does Judas's betrayal actually accomplish? Does it actually change any of Jesus's overall plans? Does it do anything to Jesus's plans for redemption? Well, no. Nothing actually changes in the end. Judas is simply starting the process of going to the cross, which was always the plan. It would have happened some other way if Judas had not betrayed Jesus. The beginning of verse 21 makes that very clear. Read it with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. Jesus isn't concerned that his plans will get destroyed or that there'll be a wrench thrown into them. He knows that he will accomplish all that the Lord has set before him to do. The gospel wasn't at stake because everything was still going according to plan. The, the religious leaders were s still seeking to kill him, and that's exactly what Jesus wants. But for Judas, he was committing an unspeakable sin that negated all the goodness of his humanity. And it would have been better if he had not been born at all. And for what? For nothing. None of it changed the final outcome. And so truly what we see is that Jesus' plan isn't affected by sin at all. The sins of the Pharisees, the chief priests, the scribes, the mob, the Romans, and Judas are all mind-boggling. They murdered the only perfect, blameless person to ever live. But it was through that sin, through those sins, that he who knew no sin became sin and then put sin in the ground. It's just as Joseph said way back in Genesis 50, 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Do you see that Jesus' plan is moving forward in spite of sin? that sin can't touch the gospel, that in fact, Jesus came to address sin. And so sin has no power over him, except the power that he enables it to have when he takes it to the grave. And so when we look upon our current circumstances, we can know that nothing is outside of God's plan. We know that God is in control. Even when things feel chaotic and out of control, even when we think that there are big time threats to his kingdom, even when we think that there are big time threats to us and our lives, really there's no threat at all. 
what can threaten any of God's decrees after all? For we are in his hand, and so what can the world do to us? Nothing. And it's not just that God is in control and that we are secure, but it's also that he is taking that which is bad and evil and working it for good according to his plan. Here in God, Jesus, here, here in Mark, Jesus is clearly in control because we know how the story ends. We know that it's all working together for good to produce the gospel. But today, in our present circumstances, we don't get the luxury of that kind of perspective. What we do get is the Bible giving us a story of betrayal, treachery, and uncertainty from the perspective of the disciples, contrasted with the calm, control, and grace of Jesus. And so it, the gospel and this account really cuts through our anxieties, our worries, our doubts, and reminds us how secure we are in Christ. That nothing is going to change. Not betrayal. Betrayal is going to do nothing. Coronavirus is going to do nothing. None of it's going to change God's plan for our lives. And so we are secure. But Jesus doesn't leave us with an account of his gracious call to a sinner being rejected. He brings his people, sinners, just as worthy of condemnation as the traitor Judas, not only to a table of fellowship, and friendship, but to a table of the covenant, which brings us to the institution of the Lord's Supper in verses 22 to 25. And there we, you know, we'll see that Jesus has a plan that anticipates and unites. And, you know, we could spend all day talking about the Lord's Supper, but there are two things that I want to highlight this morning, anticipation and union. First, anticipation. You see, Jesus's plan regarding the sacrament is bound up with the context in which it comes to us. And so the meal wasn't just any meal. It was the Passover. There was a whole liturgy surrounding the Passover with scripture readings and folks um, recounting all the great things that God had done for them. But the Passover didn't just look back. It also looked forward. And truly, the first Passover was primarily a forward-looking meal. It was an anticipatory meal. It had an expectation to it, a, a, a sense of hope and waiting and anticipation. You see, Exodus 12, 11 says that you should eat the Passover meal with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. The Jews were to be ready for the news of the Lord's final deliverance. They were watchful and expectant for the Lord to bring salvation to them, to deliver them out of the house of slavery, and to do a mighty work on their behalf. And so many of the Passovers afterwards would also have been expectant too. How many oppressors had the Jews experienced throughout their history? And in Jesus' day, they too were waiting for the Messiah to come. Well, Jesus is that Messiah, and his words instructed the disciples that they should be expectant for the great things that he was about to do on their behalf on the cross the very next day. His reinterpretation of the Passover meal told them that they should be watchful and anxious for him to do something great for them. And what a great thing he did for us. He delivered us from the greatest enemy that we have ever known and that we have, sin itself. But did you catch that last verse of our passage, verse 25? 
Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. This is what we have to look forward to. The promise that the Lord will drink it again in newness when the kingdom comes. The final arrival of the kingdom of God is what we can anticipate. On that day, we will again have a meal with the Lord Jesus, but it won't be somber and marred by traitors in our midst. Rather, it will be the marriage supper of the Lamb that will be the party to end all parties. What a glorious day it will be when we celebrate not only the defeat of sin, but its utter banishment from our experience. Good Friday and Easter were D-Day for us. The days when the war were, was won. But Judgment Day, that final day, will be VE Day, the day when we will rejoice that the war is over, when all things will be made new and that the struggle with sin is gone. That's the plan. And so for us, Jesus' plan includes anticipation of the eternal weight of glory that our present sufferings are preparing for us. That's all part of the plan that we would be waiting and anticipating. And so as we feel like life has paused and the days begin to blur together, it's sometimes hard to feel in coronavirus land that there's much to look forward to each day. And Jesus' plan reminds us that there is in fact much to look forward to each day. In the near term, life getting back to normal, seeing friends in the flesh, worshiping together physically, That's what we can look forward to. But each day, what are we yearning for? Nothing less than the return of our Lord, our Savior, and our love, Jesus Christ. And you might say, Frank, he's not coming today. Come on. He's not coming. But he could. He could come today. For no one knows the day and the hour of his return. Each day is exciting because today could be the day that we see Jesus coming. That would be awesome. And I hope that he comes today. I hope that none of you are actually watching this video because I'm videoing this on Saturday that I hope that today is the day that Jesus comes. And what an exciting prospect that is. What I can look forward to that maybe today is the day that Jesus comes back. That'd be awesome. And the second thing I'd like to highlight is union. All of that security that we have in Christ's plan and that anticipation of the glory that is to come, all of that rests on the body and blood of Christ. And really, none of that is good news for you and for me until it is applied to us. And so at the center of the sacrament is our union with Christ. At the center of, our sa- of the sacrament is our union with Christ. And I think that we miss this so much of the time. You see, we tend to focus on Christ's death and resurrection, and rightly so. Absolutely, we should do that. But the sacrament is primarily for us. The sacrament center is relational, not soteriological. Now, what does that mean? Because soteriological is a really long word that sort of means looking at salvation, right? What I mean is that the sacrament describes the application of salvation to you and to me, not salvation itself. 
And so when we dwell when we merely dwell on Christ's death and resurrection themselves, that's good, but an incomplete meditation. I also need to think about Christ's death and resurrection in the context of my own salvation. You see, the bread and the cup weren't simply displayed as symbols of what was going to happen to Jesus' body and blood on the cross. He didn't just say, look at this, this is what's going to happen. Rather, the bread and the cup were given to the disciples. And what Jesus is saying by giving the bread and the cup to each of the disciples is that they would partake. He was saying that we were going to be together in the new covenant that is founded on me, in my blood and in my body. You're going to, in the language of 1 Corinthians 10, participate in the body and blood. Do you see the relational component that is necessary and essential? That we're not simply observing Christ do something amazing over there 2,000 years ago on the cross, but we're seeing Christ do something amazing over there that has huge implications for me over here. That he is in fact doing something amazing over there and over here, right here in me. And so I always tell the, the youth group that the gospel has no less than three components. That Jesus died on the cross for sins, that Jesus rose again from the dead in victory over sin at the resurrection, and that those two things are Jesus's. They're not mine. The righteousness that I receive is not my own, but Jesus's. It's an alien righteousness. And so it's not good news until that salvation is applied to me in union with Christ. It's only good news when I am one with Jesus, when I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ who lives in me. Only then is it good news for me. When I get Jesus himself, when he is mine and I am his, only then is it good news. And the Lord's Supper highlights that the Lord Jesus has a plan to offer us himself. In the Supper The plan is that we get Jesus. Have you ever wondered why we call the Lord's Supper communion? It's because it reminds us of that glorious spiritual reality that we are united with Christ. That we get to be with Him and in Him. And we don't just get Christ either. We also get everyone else that is also united to Christ. And for us in this time of isolation, it is a great comfort knowing that we have Christ himself, that he is here with me. But also, in Christ, I'm intimately connected to more people than I could possibly imagine. This morning, I have brothers and sisters in Christ all across the globe that are united with me right now in praise and worship of our Lord Jesus. And so I am not alone in this season. And you're not alone in this season. Not only do we have the Lord Jesus, our lover and our Savior, whom we are one with, but we, are, we also have his church, our brothers and sisters with whom we will share that glorious day that we anticipate. And so I have people that I'm connected with intimately in this time when I feel like I'm alone. That's just not true. Because I have every single one of you and countless others that are here with me right now. And so as we wrap up our time together this morning, I hope that you've heard 
words that call you to rest in the security of God's plan for us. I hope that you've heard words that call us to look forward to the incomparable glories to come and the sweet fellowship that is hopefully not too far away. And I hope that you've heard words that remind you that as Christians, we have Christ himself. And if you're not a Christian and you're watching this, all this can be yours too. Jesus is saying that, yes, you're a sinner, but he is a greater redeemer and a savior and that he has a plan for your life. And it's a plan for life, life eternal. So come, join the family and receive him. You need to pray. Father, we often feel afraid and stressed in our present circumstances. You know our cares, our worries, our anxieties, our fears. Thank you for not giving us empty words, but for giving us your Son. Lord, we glorify you for your determined march to the cross to save us from sin. We praise you for giving us a glimpse of what's to come. Would you make us excited and eager for that day to come? Would it be exciting each day that we wake up wondering if today is the day? And Father, we glorify you for making us yours. What a wonder it is to be found in Christ, to know that I am not my own. Help us to live according to these glorious truths in this strange time, we pray. And of course, we pray all of these things in the name of our powerful, close, and loving Savior, Jesus. Amen. We'll see you next week.